Good morning. In today's headlines, President Biden goes to Florida to check out the wrath of Hurricane Adalia firsthand. He and Governor DeSantis offer differing views on storms and climate change. Mother Nature makes a surprise visit to Burning Man in the guise of a late summer storm. It left thousands of revelers stuck in foot-deep mud in Nevada. A Florida judge strikes down Florida congressional map as unconstitutional, saying it dilutes minority voting power. A campaign frenzy over the weekend. We zoom in on some electioneering in New Hampshire. We'll hear from a political strategist about how candidates are making a name for themselves. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the U.S. is trying to choke China's military with its superconductor export ban. Maui is urging tourists to return to the island, but how to attract more travelers and what to pay attention to when going there. Europe's largest tech exhibition is underway. What new and exciting products are making their debut? We have a preview. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, September 4th, and happy Labor Day, everybody. Yes, we want to acknowledge all of the hard work by everyone in the labor force. Yeah, well, I hear steel workers used to work seven days a week for 12 hours. That's a lot of work, yeah. And then in the early 20th century, the U.S. enacted an eight-hour workday. Oh, yeah. Well, historians say that organizing within the labor movement is usually behind those kinds of labor laws. Ah, lucky us. <laughs> All right, but we are starting with our top news with President Biden, who surveyed the destruction from Hurricane Idalia in Florida on Saturday. The president did not meet with Governor Ron DeSantis. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the visit. President Biden said he wasn't disappointed by the Republican governor's absence and said DeSantis had helped plan the trip. He also praised the Florida governor's disaster response during the visit, saying the governor was on top of it. A DeSantis spokesperson said on Friday the governor had no plans to meet Biden, explaining the security preparations needed to set up such a meeting would shut down ongoing recovery efforts. Biden took an aerial tour and received a briefing from local officials and first responders in Live Oak, a town hit hard by the storm. Your nation has your back and we'll be with you until the job is done. The president took advantage of the opportunity to discuss his views on climate change. Nobody can deny the impact of climate crises. Nobody intelligent can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. DeSantis, who spent the day about 50 miles south touring small communities along Florida's Gulf Coast, had his own take on storms and their causes. He commented that there were lots of major hurricanes in Florida in the late 40s and early 50s. But the notion that somehow if we just adopt, you know, very left-wing policies at the federal level, that somehow we will not have hurricanes, that is a lie. DeSantis says people are trying to take advantage of natural disasters. And use that as a pretext to advance their agenda on the backs of people that are suffering. The Florida governor also criticized the response to the fires in Maui at the same presser. It's interesting how incurious uh, our corporate media is about what happened in Maui. I mean, I don't see them uh, interviewing parents who can't find their kids, but we know there's a lot of people missing. 
Biden and DeSantis have spoken regularly this week about the hurricane, which pummeled Florida's Big Bend region with Category 3 winds of nearly 125 miles per hour. FEMA head Deanne Criswell says search and rescue operations have wrapped up and that officials were now focused on restoring power to affected regions. Less than 1% of Floridians were without power as of Saturday, though that figure was significantly higher in some areas directly affected by the hurricane. After concluding the Florida trip, the president traveled to his home state of Delaware, where he planned to spend the weekend. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Las Vegas is drying out after two days of heavy rainfall flooded parts of the city over the weekend. Multiple streets were flooded and a portion of Interstate 15 was shut down. Local officials reported at least three inches of rain in two days. One person reportedly drowned as a result of the flooding, but the exact cause of death and the person's identity have yet to be confirmed. The local fire service reported at least two dozen water rescues were conducted after more than 30 vehicles were stranded in water. The National Weather Service says conditions are set to dry out for the rest of the week. A flood watch remained in effect through this morning for parts of Nevada. Flooding at the Burning Man Festival has stranded tens of thousands in the Nevada desert after an unusual late summer storm. Partygoers were stuck in foot-deep mud with no working toilets at the week-long counterculture event. Organizers closed the festival to vehicles after one death was reported. Some Burning Man revelers say their spirits remain unbroken and that the overall atmosphere stayed festive despite the conditions. Those remaining say there's still plenty of food and drink to keep the party going. Every year, Burning Man brings tens of thousands of people to the Nevada desert to dance, make art, and enjoy being part of a temporary community of like-minded spirits. This year's event began August 27th and was scheduled to end today. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the U.S. is trying to choke China's military with its ban on American superconductors and will not let its most sophisticated microchips be sold to China. That's following talks with Chinese regime officials in Beijing and Shanghai last week. The U.S. is concerned about the communist regime's use of AI for military applications. The Department of Commerce announced new export controls last year on U.S. advanced semiconductors and today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Raimondo's visit. Raimondo says her Chinese counterparts asked her to relax U.S. export controls during her visit, but that she was crystal clear it wouldn't happen and that there was no room to negotiate on matters of national security. The Commerce Secretary says it's not decoupling, it's de-risking, and that there's still billions of dollars of commerce to be done in certain microchip sales to China because the vast majority are not the cutting-edge ones the U.S. is concerned about. Concerns are mounting among U.S. companies that China is uninvestable. Raimondo says recent raids on U.S. businesses without explanation and regulatory actions against Micron with no transparency put a chill on the entire business community. She told CNBC that American business wants to and is ready to compete, but feels it's too unpredictable as it's used to a traditional way of doing business in China when it comes to IP and venture requirements. Raimondo says companies need predictability, due process, and a level playing field. But the recent actions, the counter-espionage law, etc., have just made it an unlevel playing field. And that's what has to stop if U.S. business can compete there effectively. Raimondo says although some of the CCP's recent rhetoric and their 24-point plan sound positive, action speaks louder than words. 
We need to see action because right now it's getting tougher to do business in China, not easier. She suggested a Boeing deal is a good action to rebuild confidence. Raimondo says she didn't pull any punches in private meetings and brought up her email account being hacked. She says it was suggested they didn't know about it and that it wasn't intentional. Raimondo says the visit helped open lines of communication and stressed the importance of avoiding misunderstandings. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. That's the first visit to China by a U.S. Commerce Secretary in over five years and the fourth from a top U.S. official in the last few months. Raimondo says the U.S. wants to be transparent around export controls and that it's about national security, not economic competition. And with the group of 20 summits just days away, a highly anticipated meeting between President Biden and China's Xi Jinping might fizzle out. Biden said he was disappointed over reports that his Chinese counterpart won't show up for the meeting in India. Beijing confirmed that Chinese Premier Li Qiang will attend the summit in New Delhi this week, but didn't answer whether Xi Jinping will appear, following reports last week that he could skip the event. The last meeting between Biden and Xi was at the G20 summit in Indonesia last year. Biden's latest comment was made on Sunday after he told reporters he looked forward to visiting India and Vietnam. Are you disappointed that President Xi is not going to the G20? How do you explain that? I am disappointed. I'm going to get to see him. Ties between U.S. and China remain fraught despite Washington's visit this year in a bid to restart talks. Meanwhile, India and China remain locked in a standoff along the border. Beijing recently angered its neighbors with a new national map that reaffirms claims to disputed territories. Heading into the break, candidates flocking to New Hampshire for the unofficial kickoff of fall election campaigns over Labor Day weekend. A political analyst we'll speak to will give insight into the stops in the Granite State. The ability of minority voters to elect people to represent them is in the spotlight. A Florida judge calls congressional district lines unconstitutional. And social-emotional learning. What is it and how does it affect your kids? NTD spoke with a parents' rights advocate who says there's more to the learning method than meets the eye after the break. Welcome back. Four criminal indictments and a viral mugshot haven't stopped former President Trump from rising in recent polls. A survey from the Wall Street Journal last week found close to 60 percent of Republican voters would pick Trump in a primary election. Trump picked up 11 points since a similar poll by the Wall Street Journal in April. The GOP frontrunner almost doubled his lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, establishing a 46-point difference. DeSantis dropped from 35% to 13%. Among GOP voters, over 60% felt the multiple indictments against Trump were politically motivated and without merit. Nearly 80% said Trump's efforts to dispute 2020 election results were legitimate. In a hypothetical rematch between Trump and President Biden, the two rivals came in neck and neck at 46 percent. Eight percent were undecided. And we're continuing our update on the candidates vying for the White House. Labor Day weekend is historically a big push for contenders, and this year at least four of them were in the Granite State. We're joined live by Lenny McAllister, senior fellow at the Commonwealth Foundation. Lenny, good morning to you and happy Labor Day. Good morning and happy Labor Day to you as well. Thank you. Labor Day weekend is said to be a kickoff point for campaigns. What can you tell us about Ramaswamy stops in New Hampshire this weekend? 
Well, he's trying to continue the momentum. He'd like to see what he saw from the polls, from the debate, some of the polling and the movement he's seen in Iowa to continue to translate over to New Hampshire. He knows that he has to build a pathway to get enough votes behind him in those early states in order to stay on the campaign trail throughout the whole primary process. That's going to allow him to do several things. One, obviously, if he wants to win the nomination, he has to stay in the game until he can win multiple states at once. And number two, if he wants to be anything in the next Republican administration, he has to keep his name relevant. The truth is, right now, you don't have to win the, the majority of any votes. You just have to win the plurality of many of these votes, whether it's in a poll or an actual vote starting in the beginning of 2024. That's how Donald Trump won. That's going to be Vivek's playbook as of right now. Yes, and Lenny, you talk about Ramaswamy holding any position in the next administration here. So New Hampshire voters say that they like Ramaswamy, but they see him as a number two. What can you tell us about this? It's not just New Hampshire voters. There's a lot of voters that are saying he's young, he would be a great vice president. Remember, these polls are also saying that Donald Trump is coming in at 55 to 60% of Republican primary voters as of right now. So nobody wants to knock off not only Donald Trump with all the momentum that he's had from a cultural and, and support basis, but you have to remember he is a former president. It's very hard to see a guy in his 30s with no political experience that didn't even vote three elections ago being the president over somebody that already was president. Therefore, they're seeing Vivek as somebody that could be part of the GOP's future, but they don't see him superseding Trump at this time, which is why they're making that natural progression over to, man, wouldn't it be great if he were the number two on the ticket? You know it's not going to be Mike Pence again. You know, people were talking about Nikki Haley replacing Pence on the ticket in 2020. That didn't happen. So who would it be? Vivek's trying to make a case for himself there, even though he's in essence running two races. One, He's still running the race to become president in 2024, but now he's also running the race to say, hey, I'd like to be considered for the vice presidential slot on the ticket. I'd like to be considered for a cabinet post, et cetera. Right, Lenny. Well, Trump has floated the idea of having Ramaswamy as his VP. And, you know, some of these New Hampshire voters say he just needs a little more political seasoning. Now, former Vice President Mike Pence and Governor Asa Hutchinson are going to be in New Hampshire today. What do you expect there? How can they win some support? Well, Asa, Asa Hutchinson has to come across as the politician that has pragmatic solutions. He, If he tries to run the cultural war lane, there's too many people in that lane, and that's not what he generally does. He has to focus on, I got this done in Arkansas, I got this done for the betterment of the people of my state, and here is a pragmatic, balanced approach that can get things done for the American people. When it comes to Mike Pence, he, he has the harder challenge. He has to thread the needle of, getting Trump voters without being Trump and persuading people that he's pragmatic when he's been Trump's VP for four years. He has a very strong record of his own to stand on as a congressman and as a governor. But because he was the number two in the Trump administration, it's as if he has to remind people all over again of his years and years of serving as a conservative leader prior to being the number two on the ticket in 2016. That's a harder harder path to go, especially after January 6th of 2021. It's very hard to please both sides of that dynamic. That's what he has to do. That's what he's trying to do in New Hampshire. Right. And while many Americans are taking a vacation, these candidates are out on the campaign trail. So Lenny McAllister, Senior Fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation, thank you for your analysis. Thank you so much. God bless.
A Florida judge has struck down congressional district lines approved by Governor Ron DeSantis. He ruled the map as unconstitutional because it watered down minority voting power in the region. The map will be returned to the legislature for a redrawing. The Fair District's amendment says law lawmakers cannot redraw district maps which diminish minority voters' ability to elect. In this case, the redrawing affected a seat that was formerly held by Representative Al Lawson, a black Democrat. Lawson lost the district in the 2022 midterm election following the redistricting process. Plaintiffs include Black Voters Matter, Equal Ground, Florida Rising, and the League of Women Voters of Florida. They filed the case in April 2022 after DeSantis signed the new congressional maps into law. The DeSantis administration is now expected to appeal the ruling all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. The Texas Senate is set to begin the impeachment trial of Attorney General Ken Paxton. The Republican could be permanently removed from office at the hands of GOP senators tomorrow. Paxton is only the third sitting official in Texas history to be impeached. He has been re-elected twice, once in 2018 and last year in November, despite allegations of corruption. The Republican-controlled Texas House of Representatives overwhelmingly voted to impeach Paxton in May. That's over allegations of abuse of power and bribery. Eight top deputies in Paxton's agency reported him to the FBI in 2020 for allegedly using his office to help one of his donors. Paxton denies any wrongdoing and has decried the impeachment as a politically motivated sham. He says he expects to be acquitted. Critics of classroom changes cast the educational method known as social-emotional learning as a Trojan horse. It could be that it's really teaching children concepts like gender identity, critical race theory, and sexual topics? Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with parents' rights advocate Marcia Metzger to find out. Metzger first encountered the term social-emotional learning as a sex education teacher for a crisis pregnancy center. With so many students coming through the doors, the parents' rights advocate approached nearby schools to set up an abstinence program. She says the schools told her they use social-emotional learning to teach sex education. The organization CASEL defines social-emotional learning, or SEL, as a curriculum dealing with five areas of competence, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. But Metzger says when she began to examine some of the programs, she found a lot of stuff focused on race and sex built into the material. White children are labeled as non-BIPOC, BIPOC meaning Black Indigenous People of Color. Uh, the oppressed and the oppressors. I found lessons on how to come out as gay. The one uh, young man that taught the lessons on coming out and he taught other sex education lessons, uh, he looked like he was probably a non-binary person. Uh, he presented as male, but he had long eyelashes on, long fingernails and acted very effeminate. Metzger stated that the SEL material is in digital form, delivered to kids through laptops, with billions of dollars invested in the programs. One of the program makers is Savis Learning Company, formerly known as Pearson K-12 Learning. According to Metzger, Pearson is one of the main champions and supporters of the gender spectrum idea. It's pretty much a plan on how the students themselves can keep the secret from their parents on if they wanted to change their gender at school. 
The parental rights advocate remarked that the digital nature of the SEL curriculum is also troubling. Such programs and her experience are highly vulnerable to downloads and updates without anyone knowing it, which she says prevents parental oversight. It circumvents laws like with sex education in Georgia, you're supposed to go through a very detailed process and even offer an opt out to the parents if they don't want their child taught these lessons. Well, now a lot of these lessons are just integrated into their English language arts programs all the way through. And you never know when these lessons might change. And teachers say, well, we look at them first. And, but you still don't know once you hit play what this kid is going to be watching. They're, it's unsecured. It's like the new frontier. Metzger believes that the companies make money off the kids as well. And the data that is derived from it is like liquid gold to these people. The data aspect is, is tremendous, and so it's highly valued because they can manipulate and determine outcomes from it. It can record, yeah, it can record a number of different ways, um, just strictly like on camera. They can, they can even record what the child's response to reading is, you know, like, wow, or whatever, you know. Um, but they also, every time that child hits enter in many of these programs, it can be uploaded into the cloud real time. Marsha Metzger is the author of The Parent Navigator, a book she hopes will help parents understand what she calls the complex nature of the American school system. NTD reached out to Savas Learning Company, and we're waiting to hear back. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Still to come, a Chinese data collection firm is potentially aiding the Chinese Communist Party's spy operations on the U.S. We hear from a former cybersecurity official at the Department of Defense. And there are new revelations on a secretive disinformation unit within the UK government accused of suppressing free speech during the pandemic. That's after the break. It's good to have you back with us. A Chinese data collection firm is potentially aiding the Chinese Communist Party's spy operations on the U.S. The company called Log Inc. is state-controlled, therefore the Chinese regime could have access to its information, and that is logistics data of U.S. commercial and military shipments. This while purported Chinese malware is threatening U.S. networks. I wanted to learn more about these risks, so I spoke with a former cybersecurity official at the Department of Defense. Joining me now is retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills, who's also a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. John, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kevin. Always an honor to be on your show with you. Can you tell us how the Chinese regime is using Log Inc. to track U.S. military movements? Yeah, I, I would say uh, I'm very concerned about this. This is this is uh, gives them a decisive uh, vantage point because this essentially puts them inside the networks to watch and monitor worldwide shipping movements. And if you want to know what the U.S. military is up to, you watch two things. Don't, don't spend time listening to sound bites and things like and press releases. Watch the shipping flows. That explains everything. This 15 years ago, this is what we were concerned about. If they could see the shipping flows of both uh, maritime vessels, ground transport or aircraft, they know what is truth and where we're really flowing supplies. So this gives them a decisive perch to really understand the next steps of U.S. military activities. 
So what can the CCP do with that information? Well, they'll know truth on where we're flowing uh, arms, munitions, equipment, supplies. So they'll be able to decisively uh, uh, essentially be ahead of us in their decision process and their counter moves. So they're going to see our moves before we've even completed them. And then they'll be able to react to them, disrupt those moves. They'll, they'll be able to skate to where the puck will be for their next moves to uh, uh, counter moves to our moves. So how can we counteract that? Well, we need to tighten up access to our networks because this probably, I don't know for sure, but this very likely interfaces with U.S. Transportation Command. So this is a network security issue. And just like we want Huawei out, we want DJI out, we want the spy cranes out of our ports, we should not allow anything that is carrying American U.S. government material to be any way associated with this software. Right, and there's also reports that the Biden administration is trying to hunt down a malicious computer code that they believe China has deep inside these networks here, and those control the comms, the water supply, and also the power control grids for U.S. bases at home and abroad. So what can you tell us about this? Well, I'm pretty sure they're referring to Volt Typhoon, which uh, it was about April first came out, and then in July there was a frenzy of we're now uh, the Biden administration we're now hunting for all this. So I don't know if logging is a variation, an adjunct, or a new. We call them intrusion sets, intrusion sets. So I don't know if logging is a new one or is related to Volt Typhoon. But again, it shows the absolute pervasive nature of Chinese spy operations, because now they can see, they're, they're trying to see inside of all of our networks, our critical infrastructure. And uh, this, this most recent one about shipping is very, I, I'm, I'm the most concerned about this one. Well, and John, this is really concerning because these same networks service American homes and businesses. So it could be a much broader threat than we're seeing. You know, how can the U.S. protect itself? How do you weed this out? Well, this is what we set up U.S. Cyber Command for. So they need to be uh, working close with DHCISA because this is also a domestic issue. They need to be identifying and ejecting them out of these networks. And this is where the Biden team falls flat on their face every time is they think if they're poking us in cyber, we can only respond in cyber. Absolutely not. If you want the Chinese to stop this malicious activity and malign activity, you have to hit them where it hurts in the financial area. President Trump and Dr. Peter Navarro knew how to use that tool. The Biden team just seems incapable of using that. You have, if they hit us in cyber, we hit them back financially where it hurts. Seems that we need to fight fire with water and not fight fire with fire. Retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills, thank you for your time. Thank you, Kevin. Always an honor to be on your show. And now let's get to some short headlines from around the world. The Telegraph newspaper reports quoting UK officials that British intelligence agencies worked closely with the government's counter disinformation unit. The unit, which was founded to tackle false information spread by foreign actors, is accused of suppressing free speech during the pandemic. It was involved with collecting posts by domestic critics of lockdown policies, including leading scientists. 
Taiwan expects to restore power supply later today to thousands of homes cut off by Typhoon Haikui. Officials shut schools and businesses while most domestic flights were canceled. The first typhoon to hit the island in four years made landfall yesterday in the island's south and east. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said yesterday he dismissed Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov. Reznikov has been dogged by graft allegations surrounding his ministry, which he describes as smears. Zelensky said he believes that the ministry needs new approaches. Well, and corruption seems to be an all-common theme in Ukraine. Yes, and it is very key for them to weed out corruption for their ambitions to join NATO and other things. Yeah, and Zelensky did make that pledge to clean up fraud. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to head into break now. Maui residents are asking for tourists to learn to return to the island. If this is the right time to go back and what to pay attention to if you should after the break. Good to have you back. We're going to Pennsylvania where the search for an escaped convict is ongoing. Danilo Calvacante escaped from Chester State Prison in Philadelphia on Thursday. Authorities say he was spotted shortly after midnight Saturday by security cameras not far from the prison. Officials are warning local residents to remain inside and lock the doors to their homes and cars. On Friday, police were informed of an attempted burglary. The local DA says the homeowner confronted a man fitting Calvacante's description. Residents have been told not to approach him. He was wearing a light-colored T-shirt, white sneakers, and pants. He is five foot tall with long, black, curly hair. It is unknown how the convicted murderer managed to escape. He was sentenced to life in prison last month for killing his ex-girlfriend in front of her children. Police are using drones, helicopters, and dogs to locate the convict, focusing on railways, waterways, and routes out of the area. A new law in Texas requires drunk drivers to pay child support if convicted of killing a parent parent or guardian. The law says anyone convicted of intoxication manslaughter will pay restitution. The offender must pay until the child is 18 or until they graduate from high school, whichever comes later. If someone can't make restitution because they're in jail, they must start paying within one year of their release. Hawaii's governor and locals are urging tourists to return to Maui. The island is highly dependent on tourism, and just in the beginning of this month, Maui's largest commercial laundry facility announced layoffs. So how can the island attract tourists again, and what do they need to communicate to travelers? I spoke to a marketing strategist for some answers. Joining me now is Sheila Steinmark. She is a marketing strategist and the CEO of Mock XP. Good morning, Sheila. First. It hasn't been long um, talking about the uh, Maui tourism. It hasn't been long, you know, since the fire. People are still stuck without housing. They don't know when to start rebuilding again. And the governor now is urging tourists to return to Maui. So do you think this is the right time to start market Maui again? I think it is. Um, it'll take a while for people to actually get there to to make the trips and get everything booked and, and all of that. You don't go on a, a Maui vacation at, at the drop of a hat. But if we don't get the message out that it's time to return to Maui, 
then it will devastate Maui in a, in a completely different way than the fire. Now, how long between getting the message out and until the people there can see tourists trickling in again? I think it needs to be as soon as possible, uh, a good couple of weeks to a month, because at this point, with the amount of people in Maui who rely on tourism, not only is it affecting all of them, but every other business that receives its income from it. So we have people who are greatly impacted by the fires themselves, but the tourism and the, the breakdown of that industry will devastate their economy. Mm. Now, like you say, they're heavily reliant on tourism. So how do they best attract travelers again, and maybe even with the urgency that they need the travelers to come back soon. How to best do that? They need to change the optics. Right now, everybody is seeing the devastation of the fire. And it is such a small area of Maui compared to the size of Maui. I mean, it is it is painful to look at the photos, but people need to understand that that's just a small piece of Maui. And there is such a beautiful area that is still vibrant and ready to engage them. And without people coming, it will devastate the entire, the entire island. Mm. I think that's a very important point here. Now, at the same time, how can businesses make sure that the tourists that they end up attracting stay sensitive towards the locals that were affected. Um, and so how, what, what needs to be communicated there? Any do's and don'ts maybe? Absolutely, be respectful. Understand that people are mourning. They're mourning loss of, of life, of property, of the life that they're used to having. And in their rebuilding, they're ultra sensitive which means show love, show affection, show authenticity, and don't drain, be patient. Understand that some of the systems aren't at the same level they used to be. Mm -hmm. If you're going to post, be sensitive. If you're gonna use social media, show the beauty that is still Maui and the wonderful people there and remind people what, they've, what they're going through. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I was going to ask about social media etiquette there, too. So thank you t for touching on that. I really appreciate your time today, Sheila Steinmark. Thank you. Thank you. It is an important discussion, Evelyn. And while the devastation wreaked havoc on so many lives, it's important to note that she said that there's not that much area that's affected by it. Right. I had the same takeaway, so thank you for pointing that out again. Yeah, and it's critical that they get that message out because 21% of Hawaii's economy is from tourism, the largest industry. Exactly, exactly. At the same time, of course, I understand the difficulty between balancing the, the devastation that really happened, because you want to pay attention to that as well, but um, at the same time, pivoting away and showing the beauty of it again. Right, and Hawaii's tourism officials said, if you want to help, keep your trip. Exactly. Well, we're heading to Ohio now, where a national forest is at the center of a vigorous debate. The U.S. Forest Service proposed renaming Wayne National Forest after Ohio State tree, the Buckeye. The proposal comes amid a sweeping review of what the Biden administration calls derogatory place names. General Anthony Wayne was one of the founding fathers and was once celebrated as a so-called Indian fighter. 
but the proposal has proven controversial. Supporters say it's doing right by indigenous people who have resided on the land for millennia. Opponents argue that history is being erased, along with Wayne's important role in westward expansion. They were the first stewards of this land. So tribes manage these forests, you know, before we ever arrived here. Southern Ohio forests and riverways have been cleared of Native Americans, so I'm not sure we can erase Wayne from history. I think he left his mark on history in very much a very indelible way. We'll never be able to erase that. It happened. You take down all the statues and rename everything, that's not going to change. Our turbulent, creative, wonderful, and often difficult past. It, it, we got to tell everybody's story. The public comment period for the proposal ends today. Well, and these kind of artifacts can give people a chance to discuss history and see if there's something we can learn from it and improve. Yeah, exactly. And we are heading to break now. Why haven't Americans heard much about the Inflation Reduction Act President Biden signed over a year ago? An economist we spoke to gives us some insight into this after the break. Welcome back. Let's take a look at some business headlines. The threat of strike looming in the video game industry. SAG-AFTRA is seeking approval from union members to go on strike should talks fail with major employers later this month. The union is blaming artificial intelligence for taking workers' jobs. Strike action in the U.S. auto industry is looking more likely. The United Auto Workers Union and the big three Detroit automakers have less than two weeks to negotiate a new contract. Union leaders have threatened a work stoppage if demands for higher pay and approved benefits are not met. Combined strike action could deal a devastating blow to the automakers, as well as the wider U.S. economy. How has the remote working work trend common since COVID began impacting housing? A recent report found affordability is the chief concern of buyers and renters. More remote workers are more willing to buy or rent farther away from city centers in order to save money. Many Americans are concerned about the economy, particularly inflation, and now 7 out of 10 residents, respondents to a recent poll say they've heard little to nothing about the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, that President Biden signed a little over a year ago. We hear from an economist on how Bidenomics is playing out. Joining me now is Thomas Hogan, Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you so much for your time today, Thomas. Why is it that so few Americans have felt any of the effects based on this poll of the Inflation Reduction Act? Thanks. I'm glad to be on. And yeah, you're right. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, has really not benefited Americans very much, especially in terms of reducing inflation. Um, it seems like, you know, inflation really has nothing to do with this act. Biden has been trying to claim that his policies uh, brought down inflation. But of course, he previously didn't want to take any of the blame for infl inflation. You know, he had blamed inflation on Putin's price hike a few years ago, saying that it was caused by, you know, Russia's war with Ukraine or supply chains. Uh, but the truth is, inflation was mostly caused by a bad monetary policy by the U.S. Federal Reserve. When we see prices rising across the economy and persistent inflation like we've had, that's probably a problem of monetary policy, it really doesn't have anything to do with the Biden administration or the Biden administration's policies. And so the Inflation Reduction Act really didn't play any role at all in bringing down inflation. 
So the the whole Bidenomics idea, uh, if we can even call it that, I mean, Bidenomics is just sort of a, a name made up by the administration. And the idea kind of is that they're going to spend a bunch of money, the government is going to spend money in ways that will make the economy more productive. And if the economy is more productive, then it brings prices down. There are a couple of problems with that idea. One is that if that were to happen, the, the price reductions would happen slowly over decades. Um, and so that's not really what we think about in terms of inflation. Inflation is prices in the short term going up and going up over and over again, not just one time like would happen if you had a productivity change. Um, but the, the other problem is that, you know, government spending doesn't really improve productivity very much. Most studies find that for every dollar spent by the federal government, total economic spending only goes up by 60 to 80 cents. And so it really the government spending is not good at making the economy more efficient or more effective. Um, it just basically takes money away from some people, taxpayers uh, or, you know, investors in terms of issuing bonds, and then it spends it on things that the government wants, whatever pet, pet projects uh, the politicians like that day. And so there's no reason that it would really make the economy more productive. Okay, so Thomas, Biden is touting a strong job performance as well as lowered inflation because of his investments. Can you give us some context to this so we can see the big picture here? Yeah, again, I think those things really don't have anything to do with the Biden administration. You know, most of the economy that we're seeing right now in terms of inflation that was high and then coming down um, and job growth that has stayed persistently very strong, I think that's all mostly due to monetary policy. I mean, the, the strong job growth definitely predates the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And in fact, for um, for you know more than a year, we've had extremely low unemployment rates. So there is a very strong economy in terms of the the labor market. The economy itself doesn't seem to be growing as well as it normally would. Uh, we would think with this kind of a, a low unemployment rate, and so kind of a mixed message, but definitely nothing that really has to do with the Biden administration. Well, I really appreciate your analysis, Thomas Hogan at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be on. Just ahead, a tech lover's dream is happening right now in Berlin. See some of the latest leading edge offerings being presented there. A dog and a bull, what's the common denominator? Find out when we come back. Welcome back. A tech show in Germany with all the new electronics and home appliances is drawing huge crowds. Here's a peek at some highlights from this year's show. Technology is playing an ever-increasing role in our lives. Consumers always search for the newest developments and innovations. Europe's largest tech show, the IFA in Berlin, has thousands of such items on display. The show's website says almost 200,000 visitors will come check out the new gadgets this year. Would you enjoy looking millions of years into the past with a user-friendly telescope? The Unistellar can see celestial objects up to 25 million light years away. So there is a, a range of distances you can see. Uh, the, the farthest is the uh, millions of light years. You, you are able to see galaxies with this telescope. Actually, one of those galaxies is 25 million light years away. So you are seeing the galaxy the way it was 25 million years ago. 
It's also simple to operate for those people who may not feel comfortable learning how to use new technology. And we made this telescope to be the simplest to use by far on the market. It's so easy that you just have to set it up on its tripod, turn it on, it will take your GPS position, and from there, it will be able to propose to you the list of objects that it's interesting to see tonight. Protecting ourselves and our technology in the future is the aim of this cutting-edge material used in cell phone cases, motorcycle helmets, and other things. D3O is soft and flexible in its resting state, but upon impact, the molecular structure of the material locks and stiffens the material to absorb the shock of a, a fall or a knock or a drop, thus protecting your device or yourself if you're coming off your motorcycle at 100 miles an hour. Crafting is a popular activity these days. This cutting machine allows you to make cutout items from a variety of materials, even if you're not so creative. The cutting machines can cut out iron arm, they can cut out vinyl or cardboard, and um, every project that you can imagine can be brought to life with those machines. So even people who don't have any creative abilities can get creative because we also provide the software and the ideas and all the products behind that. The IFA show satisfied the craving of those who hunger for the newest consumer technology. IFA Berlin runs through September 5th. Wow, that was exciting. There's some really sophisticated telescopes. Yeah, I knew that you would like that one. I have to say, I, lo I love walking through those fairs and just exploring all these new things that you've never seen before. Awesome. Yeah, it gives you a lot of good ideas. Exactly. And for the people with uh, not quite the budget, you can use binoculars to look at the stars. Yeah. There you go. It really can be really revealing. I mean, you could see like some stars look like one, but actually they're two mm. under that seven times mag. So oh, interesting. It's pretty cool. And uh, while you're enjoying your holiday, we have some fun headlines for you. It's a heartwarming story with a happy ending. Police in Platteville, Wisconsin responded to a call last month about a stray dog in a local park. When police arrived on the scene, a dog came running up to them and jumped right into the cruiser. The dog was wearing a pink collar with a handwritten note attached to it. It said, please help, take me to a shelter. My name is Lola. In a Facebook post, police reached out to the community requesting help in reuniting Lola with her owners. However, in a recent update, Platteville police reported that Lola found a new home after being adopted. And police in Nebraska made an unusual traffic stop, a vehicle with a giant bull riding in the front passenger seat. Local police in the town of Norfolk were tipped off about a man driving with a cow in the passenger seat. Police officers told local news media outlets they initially expected to see a small calf inside the vehicle. Instead, they found a Watusi bull, a breed known for its giant spiraling horns. Police pulled over the driver and the bull named Howdy Doody. At least the vehicle was modified to make sure there was space for the bull in the front. The, these are stories that one cannot make up. A bull named Howdy Doody. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's awesome. Definitely not something you see every day. For sure. I've never seen it in my life. Those horns. Wow. <laughs> All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So write us if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.